today's scripture. Today's scripture jumps right into things. The author minces no words. We're reading today from an epistle, a letter. And listening to epistle, an epistle is a very different animal from listening to a gospel story. Stories are easy to follow. As we listen to this today, I invite you to pay attention, though, in this reading to the balance of things. The first half deals with sin, and the second half with grace. And perhaps we cannot feel that grace unless we have heard a little bit more about the sin. And so the author lays it on thick so that we might experience what God has in store for us. The pivotal moment in the reading that tips us between sin and grace comes with these words. Because of God's great love. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church this day from the letter to the Ephesians. You were dead through trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among us who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in passions of our flesh and following the desires of the flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And you have been raised, and God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, send your Holy Spirit on us as we have heard your word. Speak your word more deeply into each heart and mind that we may know who you have called us to be in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, you know what? A sermon is a very strange animal. At some moments it is wild and feral and difficult to tame, and at other times it is domesticated, docile, and very difficult to get off the couch. Think about what we do here each Sunday morning. We gather together around Scripture and the interpretation of Scripture, and for what? To learn, 
to be inspired, to be motivated, to be convicted, to be moved toward repentance or to action, to be comforted and consoled, to be reminded of what we have heard of old. All that and more. As this preacher, as the preacher seeks to tame this wild animal we call the sermon, we're never sure which tricks the listeners want to see. Will this animal fetch, sit up and beg, dance, jump through hoops, or sing, I left my heart in San Francisco? We never know what this wild animal will do or what will count as genuine preaching for those who have gathered. A couple of years ago, here at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church, uh, a visitor came up to me after a service, and I had preached the week before, and this visitor came up and said, Oh, I, yeah, you heard you preach last week. Have you been to seminary? <laughs> and I was taken a little back, of course, a bit of back, and I held my tongue, and I did not say, you, you know I have a PhD in preaching, right? I thought better. I just let him talk and tell me more. You know, you never got around in your sermon to telling us what to do. When I get to the end of the sermon, I need to know what I'm supposed to do. Now, it was too much for me to explain narrative styles of preaching, inductive modes of preaching. I just had to acknowledge that every hearer of a sermon has a different sense of what a sermon is and what a sermon does and what a sermon is, sets us up to experience. This animal we call the sermon is difficult to tame to everyone's liking. Today's scripture passage from Ephesians actually is a little bit of a sermon. It's sermonic in its nature. What do I mean? Well, this passage from the second chapter of Ephesians doesn't just tell us something. It's not just conveying information. You once were dead in sin and God made you alive in Christ. End of story. This little sermon of 10 verses actually does something. We can certainly pick it apart and explain each word and talk about the historical context and the theological background behind each idea. We can make a list of all the concepts we need to get to be able to learn, to grow, to understand, to be convicted, to grasp the truth of the gospel. But if we just focused on those things in reading scripture to glean information, we would miss what the scripture does. What the scripture does to us while we hear it, as we ponder it, as we live with it, trying to domesticate it, to make sense of it. While our minds are occupied with the task of understanding, the, te the text itself is having its way with us. This little sermon from Ephesians, while we're trying to grasp what it's saying, grasps us. How many times have you seen someone out walking their dog and you wonder if the dog is actually walking the human instead? This text before us this morning, more than having us understand the gospel, would have us experience the gospel. This is so much easier to talk about if I were telling you a story. When we're in the midst of a story, we don't think too much about it. 
We're just taken up into that world of the story. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs, and each little pig wanted to build his own house in his own way. One built a house of straw, one built a house of sticks, and one built a house of bricks, and everything would have been just fine if it weren't for that wily, willful, wanton, wild animal of a wolf. And we're already hooked. We enter into another world, and the story has its way with us, and we don't even notice. Now, a sermon, well, that's a completely different animal for sure. A sermon is about thoughts and ideas. It's about explanations and reason, isn't it? Our little sermon from Ephesians isn't a story, after all, right? It's a letter. It's just a set of ideas on a page. We learn about our sinfulness and we learn about the grace of God, not earned, not worked for. And as soon as we grasp the ideas, we can move on, thanks be to God, what's for lunch? But maybe, just maybe, our sermon from Ephesians is a story. Maybe there is an exposition with rising action and a dramatic turning point and a resolution. Maybe the story is working its way into our hearts like a feral kitten that you've begun to feed a little out at the back door. And you, and within a matter of no time at all, that now grown-up cat lives indoors, ruling the roost, setting the schedule, demanding the world revolve around it, and that you love and adore and shower it with affection. Be careful of such wild animals. We as humans are hardwired to care for them. And we are hardwired by God to care for the gospel story from scripture that wends its way into our lives. Let's hear that story again. Thanks to Eugene Peterson's translation. It, it wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder that God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead of immense, in, instead immense in mercy and with an incredible love god embraced us he took our sin our sin dead lives and made us alive in christ he did all this on his own with no help from us and then he picked us up and he set us down in highest heaven in company with jesus our messiah now god has us where he wants us with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus, saving is all God's idea and God's work. All we do is trust enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from the start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. God creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. And the story goes on. I have to tell you, friends, 
be careful of the gospel story. It will find its way into your heart before you know it. You thought you'd be safe with the gospel out on the back porch. A few scraps of your life from time to time and that's all it'll cost you. Next thing you know, the gospel has found its way into your heart's home, occupying your attention, your mind, your time, your whole being, and you're left wondering, how did I ever live without this gospel in my life? I didn't even know I was so lonely, so seemingly dead, but now I feel alive. Oh, what a change. This feral gospel has made its way into my life, and now life doesn't make sense without it. We weren't expecting it, but somehow the gospel has taken up residence in our lives. It was an adjustment at first, but we're making it work. And before we know it, we try to tame and domesticate the gospel so that all the adjustments we made in our lives when it first showed up aren't so necessary anymore. We slip back into the old routines and the old gospel has become so routine that we don't even miss the wild, the wildness of the gospel that when it was new, made us new. So what do we do when the gospel has become too tame and we no longer feel like new creation and the promise that the whole cosmos could be new creation seems like a youthful idea? What happens when the sin of complacency and neglect, of despair or ingratitude or bitterness or contempt, the sin of letting something other than the gospel have control over our lives settles into our lives like an elephant in the room? What are we to do? What are we to do? Believe it or not, when we've reached our own dead ends, it's time for... Wait for it, a sermon. Nice tittering, thank you, okay. It is time for a sermon, let me tell you why. Before you roll your eyes again, hear me out. Let me tell you a story, long, long ago, back when the world was young, no wait, even before that, God spoke and said, let there be light. God spoke the whole cosmos into being, God preached, and it was so. The writer of the Gospel of John captures this moment in the beginning of the Gospel story. In the beginning was the Word. Now you probably all know that the Greek word for word is logos, right? All right, okay. Now when this word logos got translated into Latin, it became the word verbum. In principio erat verbum, in the beginning was the Word and a little dance music. <laughs> now here's where the story gets ramped up. About 500 years ago, there was a man named Erasmus, and he was irascible. <laughs> he, he was learned and loved ideas, and he loved the gospel. He did a radical and controversial thing in his day, back in Europe, in Rotterdam, in the Netherlands. He wrote, his own translation of the Bible. The only Bible that he had at the 500 years ago was in the common Latin, quite outdated. So to help folks out, Erasmus translated the Bible into, wait for it, you were gonna say English, weren't you? Dutch, no, he translated the Bible into Latin. 
Okay, so that's not much of an innovation, but one thing he did was when he got to the Gospel of John in the first verse of the first chapter, he, he translated that one that said, in principio erat verbum, in beginning was the word. He translated that there, in principio, in the beginning erat sermo. In the beginning was the sermon. Ooh, right. Now, you may not think this is radical, but Erasmus got into so much trouble for changing one word. This one change in translation actually set in motion a whole radical change in the Christian church. The Protestant movement was sparked in part, mind you, by proclaiming that Jesus Christ was God's sermon for all creation. Have, we ever, have you ever heard a sermon that changed the entire cosmos? After all these years, I'm still trying to figure out what this preaching animal actually is. God will it so that we hear God's sermon piece by piece in every scripture, moment by moment, tapping into that radio broadcast that from the beginning of time is circulating the cosmos. God will it. Now, sermon originally meant a conversation, a dialogue. It is not something that takes place just in one moment in time. When we, said, when we say the words, let there be light, that takes about 1.3 seconds. But when God said it and continues to say it, let there be light, it takes all of eternity. God's sermon is ever ongoing. God's sermon is eternal in the heavens and breaks into our lives here and now over and over again at God's own initiative, by God's own will. It is an ongoing conversation between God and all of creation. A conversation that we from time to time get to overhear. So when I say that whenever in our lives we've reached a dead end, as scripture says, you were dead in your sins. For whatever reason, it is time for a sermon. And what I mean is that the time for which from the beginning of time has been God's eternal living, dialoguing word to break into our lives here and now. In the beginning was God's yes come to upend every routine and preach new creation to our deaf, dumb, and blind hearts. And why? Why does God preach such a sermon to us? A sermon through which, as the great Peter Augustine said 1,600 years ago, God called and cried out and shattered our deafness this is a sermon that was radiant and resplendent and put to flight our blindness. A sermon that was fragrant and we drew our breath and now we pant only after God. A sermon which we tasted and now we feel only hunger and thirst for God. A sermon through which God touched us and we have been set on fire to attain the peace which is only of God. And why would God preach such a sermon? The answer is in the story. Right there between the story of our dire sin situation, captive, and, and the celebration of God's grace. It's why God preaches such a sermon to us. Because of great love. Because of great love. We didn't earn it. 
We cannot make it happen. It is because of God's great love. Why did God create the cosmos and call it good? Because of God's great love. Why did God create humanity in God's image and say, verily, this is good because of God's great love? Why did God seek to rescue and liberate and emancipate God's beloved people from slavery? Because of God's great love. Why has God continually reached across the great divide to draw us who were estranged to the side of grace and mercy and restoration and wholeness and reconciliation because of God's great love? Why is it that God has come to us in Jesus Christ, redeemed and forgiven us, made us new creation, us in Jesus Christ for good works, which God has prepared beforehand to be our way of life? If you don't know the answer yet, you haven't been listening to God's sermon. Because of great love. This is the only answer, the only story. This is the only sermon. And it rings throughout eternity, for God so loved the world that God gave his only Son that whosoever believeth in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in the order that the world might be saved through him, God so loved the world. God so loved us. Let God's sermon into your hearts, into your minds, into your whole lives. It is Jesus Christ himself. And God, and God because of his great love, has done this. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Amen.